Good morning. We're starting a couple minutes late. I wanted to, um, just because I want to sit here and kind of listen to this. It's been, it's uh, cool to have our house full this morning. We are so glad that you're here joining us, uh, incarnate in the flesh. If you're here, if you're joining us online, we're glad that you've joined us online. Uh, we have a lot to celebrate this morning. We have a lot of, um, a lot going on this morning in this hour and a half, and we're not going to shortchange a single thing. It's all so sweet. So we're going to take our time this morning. We have a, a children's dedication this morning, so a lot of family members are here for a children's dedication. We want to welcome you and just let you know that we're really, really glad that you've taken time to join us this morning. Your families and your children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews, whoever they might be to you, are dear to us, and I think you'll find that out later on in the morning as we have some time of dedication. So what we're going to be doing first this morning, we are in the second week of a, a celebration called Lent. Uh, this year we'll be celebrating Lent for seven Sundays, the seventh Sunday landing on Easter morning. And really, for those of you that are not familiar with Lent, uh, if you have a, maybe a, a, a tradition background that didn't practice Lent, I'll give you just a, just a brief summary of what it is. It's a real intentional engagement with the darkness and consequences of our sin over the course of about six or seven weeks leading up to Easter morning. In some ways, what we're doing as we really come to grips with our sinfulness, we're coming to grips also with this journey to the cross that our Lord took on our behalf. It's a season to be very intentional about the price, to be conscious of the price paid for our sin. So it's a time to come to grips with who we really are, but also to come to grips with this wonder and joy and delight that we have in our Savior. So every Sunday we are beginning our time with a, a, a time of reading and prayer. We have families that are coming up at different points uh, during these seven weeks uh, this morning will be the newlyweds, uh, Robin and Phil. Y'all can come on up and get ready. Uh, these are uh, a week, a week married. Yes, yes. We'll see how this goes. It's made your first assignment. That's a new couple. So, um, but each family that's coming up is doing a reading and a time of prayer, and they will be extinguishing a candle. We have actually eight candles up here. The center candle represents uh, Easter morning or will be lit on Easter morning. But each of those seven, uh, on each Sunday, we will uh, extinguish a candle moving toward that Good Friday service that we'll have at 3 p.m. on the Friday before Easter. And then we'll relight all of them again in a time of celebration and joy together as the people of God on Easter morning. So I'll be quiet and turn it over to y'all. I am the
Thank you, Robin and Phil. Y'all did great. That, uh, as you can take in from what they just read and prayed, Lent is a very sober season. It is a very sober season, and I don't know of a better place to go than uh, a Puritan prayer. Uh, Puritans came to grip with their own sin. The beauty in that and really coming to grips with the darkness of your own sin is then you really get to appreciate the light of the world. So that's where we're going this morning. Uh, we're going to continue our morning in prayer. We're going to pray for a people group in India, uh, the Mapila people, 8.7 million strong, 0.00 witch of Christians. Uh, we're going to pray for the uh, Jesus film for them, that we can get the Jesus film into their hands, that we can get the scriptures into their language, uh, that people and workers will go to the far corners of the field, and that the Holy Spirit will draw people uh, to the Lord. So uh, we're also going to pray for another church uh, in our community. We're going to pray for our church plant in Rockwall. Uh, that's uh, Cross Point Community Church in Rockwall, and their three pastors, uh, Lance, Kai, and Ryan. Uh, let's go, go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are so thankful for this time that we've spent already this morning being reminded of the darkness of our own hearts and our condition, our distance from a holy God. Um, Lord, we do indeed need tears to wash our tears, and we need to repent of our repentance. Lord, I pray that the spirit of this morning and how we spend these few minutes together will be sober and it'll be coupled with joy. It'll be serious, uh, leading to wonder and awe uh, that grace uh, should reach so low for us. Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for a people group in uh, India, praying for the Mapilla people. Uh, Lord, we know that you know this people group, not, it, not even just as a whole, but you know every single person of this 8.7 million people. Lord, we beg you for their souls. We ask you to draw them to you. We ask you to put simple things into their hands like the Jesus film and like the scriptures. And Lord, we pray that those tangibles will connect to something that uh, is unseen but always at work, that the Holy Spirit would be uh, creating an itch and a desire and a hunger uh, in hearts, Lord, that would connect with these things that are put in their hands and that would connect also to people going to the far corners of the field and that you would draw this people group to you. Lord, we ask you this for your namesake, for your glory, for the advancement of your kingdom. And Lord, so your son will return. We ask you to hasten in reaching these people groups we pray for each week. We ask you to stir people to go that just can't stay. Lord, we also pray for another church in our community and are thankful for the chance to lift up uh, Commerce Community Church. We pray for Lance and Kai and Ryan. Lord, we pray that you would bless them, that you would uh, nourish them, that you would uh, give them tremendous uh, worship-fueled endurance as they serve the saints in Rockwall. Lord, we pray that their church would flourish, uh, that your bride would be washed with the word and would be in the process of being beautified for Christ's return. Lord, we are thankful for the chance to lift them up this morning. We turn these few minutes over to you, Lord. Guide us uh, into your presence. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for the reading of the word from John chapter 8?
John chapter 8, verse 12, says again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Lord, speak to us through these powerful words. Shine on us in these next few minutes. Open the eyes of our hearts to see the glory of God in Christ. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. We are in the I Am Statements in the book of John over the course of Lent. This is our second Sunday, our second investment in this series of I Am Statements. The I Am Statements, if you're kind of curious, uh, which I hope you have some measure of curiosity over this this morning, uh, where this comes from, it's a strange phrase for the Lord to identify himself as the I Am. Uh, This actually, we believe, is rooted in a passage in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus should be on speed dial this morning, so if you want to turn over to Exodus, you can kind of keep a, a finger in there or a a pen or a bookmark or something, we'll be going back and forth to Exodus over the course of the morning. But in Exodus chapter 3, uh, verses 13 and 14, this is the burning bush encounter where Moses uh, is speaking with the Lord, the Lord sending him back to Egypt uh, to lead his people out of slavery, and Moses is trying to talk him out of it. And here's, uh, he, he uses the, ex- the excuse of what if, what, you know, what, who shall I say sent me? So here's where that question is answered in verse 13 of chapter 3. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I've always uh, struggled a little bit with that, that name. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting name. It's where the word, uh, the name Yahweh is derived from the I am statement. Uh, it, it seems so open-ended. It seems all-encompassing, but it seems so mysterious and open-ended. In my mind, I've always kind of had this invisible blank after it. I am what? I am all things. I am some things. I am what? This invisible blank beautifully is answered in the person of Christ. You can go back over to John, and again, I want you to keep Exodus on speed dial, but I'll share a little introductory passage in the book of John, John chapter 1, verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, we could say the I am, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. In some ways, the way I've connected these two passages, this name and this revelation over here in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses, with this reality that Christ explains the Father, Christ reveals the Father, that Jesus makes him known, is that Jesus in many ways fills in the blank. This big pregnant blank that's a few thousand years, a couple thousand years old by this point. You get shadows and shades of it over the narratives and the events and the stories that unfold. But when Jesus shows up, he explains the Father. He makes him known. And what's beautiful is over the course of the book of John, he puts seven insertions into that blank. I am the bread of life is what we considered last week. And this morning, I am the light of the world. Some of these other I am statements, if you would like to do some study ahead of time in these coming weeks i am the door of the sheep is where we'll be next week i am the good shepherd is where we'll be the week after that 
Next, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then later on in the book, the last I am statement of John, he says, I am the true vine. Seven I am statements in the book of John. John seems to like the number seven. In the book of Revelation, he uses it quite a few times. It's a picture of fullness and wholeness. I wouldn't make too much of seven I am statements that he's making the full representation of the Lord there, but uh, I wouldn't be afraid of that either. But there's some other interesting sevens in the book of John. There are seven signs in the book of John. We spent almost nine years preaching through the book of John, our first nine year uh, of this church plant. So these, uh, this book is dear to us. Really, if, uh, if you've been here for some period of time, it's built into our DNA. Uh, there are seven signs and miracles over the book of John. Some of those signs and miracles, the first one, water to wine. Then the healing of the official son is the second one. Third is the healing at the pool of Bethesda. Fourth is the feeding of the 5,000. Fifth is walking on the water. Sixth is the healing of the blind man. And seventh is raising Lazarus from the dead. In some cases, the signs actually match the I am statements. In some cases, the, the, the miracle that's performed is actually the revelation of the application of that I am statement. It's not true in every case, but in quite a few. Uh, the raise, uh, just last week, he, he feeds the multitudes, and then he says, I'm the bread of life. Uh, maybe the clearest example would be the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11, and then he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Some beautiful declarations that are connected to some wonderful miracles. John's point of writing this book he said, I have written and recorded these things so that you may have life. So you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that you may have life in his name. We're on holy ground this morning, people. We're in a good place, in the sweet spot of an opportunity to enjoy life in his name as we enjoy these I am statements. John chapter 8, verse 12 is going to be home base for us, where I just read this morning. I'd like to spend a few minutes just pointing out some of the furniture in this, in this simple verse. This furniture are things that we'll come back to briefly at times over the morning. It's going to be a little bit of a, 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 a maybe a sterile uh, investment, and we'll move into some more narratives here in a moment. So this will just, just play along with me in these next few minutes. Let's point out the furniture of this simple verse. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This first piece of furniture I want to point out is just the simple word, again. Okay, again points back to something that's happened before this verse in chapter 8, verse 12. And I'll go ahead and give you a clue where it points back to. This little scene, okay, if this were a play, it's not a play, it's a real life story. But this little scene or this little act would technically begin in chapter 7, verse 2. Okay, at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. It's a long scene, a long conversation that starts over there in chapter 7, verse 2. So again, it's pointing us back to actually beyond chapter 8, verse 1, to the whole chapter 7. Okay, And this scene goes chapter 7 all the way through chapter 8, verse 59. It's a big scene and big, really pregnant, uh, full act. The second piece of furniture I want to point out is just the I am statement. There are echoes of this I am statement throughout this chapter. The first one, of course, there is in chapter 12, I am the light of the world. Some of them that are hidden later on in the chapter, 
Uh, here's one in, uh, chapter t- or in, in chapter 8, verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, the he is not there in the original language. He's saying I am, identifying his name and identity again. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Another uh, verse is in verse 28. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. There is no he there in the original language. It's very clearly an I am statement. And the most obvious of the echoes is all the way over in verse 58. This isn't counted as one of the standalone I am statements. I think it's probably connected to the I am the light of the world development. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Make no mistake, our Lord here, 2,000 years ago, is saying very clearly during this Feast of Tabernacles, this Feast of Booths, I am God the Son. Make no mistake about what's being communicated here. It's crystal clear. A couple other pieces of furniture from this passage. Uh, It reads, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Follows, I just want to point out, is present tense. Okay, it kind of develops the picture of this life of pursuit, not just a one-time event. We're in a community that is actually in some ways, um, and this is a caricature, and it's a fair caricature in some ways because it's a large part of our community, has reduced faith to some conversion experience. But our scriptures say that faith is actually a life of pursuit, pursuing the Lord, present tense. Whoever follows is a beautiful present tense reference. Whoever follows me will not walk. That word walk actually is the word in the, uh, in the sort of the Hebrew context that would, would be a synonym with whoever lives, whoever moves, whoever has their being in pursuit of Christ will not walk and live and move in darkness. It's a caricature of lar- a, char- a character of the life in pursuit of Christ and following Christ. So the first of all is whoever follows me is present tense. That next piece of furniture uh, that I really want to draw out is we will, we will, uh, the one that following Christ will not walk in darkness, but will live and have and have their being in light. And this next piece of furniture is that, that little phrase there at the end will have the light of life. You can even maybe write out if you're one of those that writes in your Bible. You can maybe write out in the margins what that actually means is but we'll have light that gives life. We'll have light that gives life. The one who is following Christ, the light of the world, will not walk in darkness, but will have light that gives life. Now, the darkness is developed in the passages after that. Okay, what the darkness is referred to here in the passages after that is clearly developed in verses 13 through all the way through 59. What's developed is not knowing. I'm not going to read that whole section, but I'll just kind of point out a few of the evidences there. It's a big dialogue on what darkness really is. Verse 14, you do not know. Verse 15, you judge wrongly according to the flesh. Verse 19, you know neither me nor the Father. And verse 43, you do not understand. And then the little chapter ends with a real graphic picture of what this unbelief, this darkness, this not knowing looks like in verse 58 and 59. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This God declaration. So they, those who are walking in darkness and unbelief and not knowing, pick up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. A very graphic picture of not knowing. So a summary of darkness just from that chapter is it's not knowing, it's not understanding, it's not believing. It doesn't really help us with the light of the world yet, though, does it? Okay, it develops the darkness, but I want to spend the remainder of the morning just on that phrase, the light of the world. We're going to draw out what this means. And we're going to do two things over the next few minutes. We're going to look older and we're going to look bigger. Okay, we're going to look older as in past tense from that moment, 2,000 years ago. We're going to look at what would have been old for them, and then we're going to look to the left and the right. We're going to look bigger and wider. Okay, those are the two things we're going to do to draw out what this phrase means, what he's identifying here in this blank that's filled, I am the light of the world. We're going to make sense of the declaration first by going older. Turn over, if you would, to the book of Exodus again. Keep that on speed dial. We're going over to Exodus chapter 16. I'll give you a little uh, background as you're turning there. I shared with you that this chapter, or this scene, I should say, begins in chapter 7, verse 2. Okay, in chapter 7, verse 2, I'll give you a, little, uh, a few little references here. I think they would be helpful. Uh, it's very important to understand their context. In chapter 7, verse 2, it indicates uh, that the Feast of Booths was at hand. Okay, the Feast of Booths was at hand. That's a very important reference. It goes all the way through chapter 8, verse 59. There's a passage in verse uh, 14 that indi indicates it's the middle of the feast where things really start to get crazy. Where Jesus really starts to do some unusual things about the middle of this week-long feast. The Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Booths was a yearly feast celebrating God's care and provision in the wilderness. Okay, in the wilderness from Egypt to Canaan. If you know that story, it really covers a few books. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy sort of looks back on it. Okay, they tell the nuts and bolts, the details, the narratives, the events, the laws that are behind all those events in those few books. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I can't recommend an Old Testament sequence of books more heartily than those books because they will help you make sense of a lot of the New Testament. And in fact, apart from them, and apart from being saturated in that story of the Exodus in the wilderness, I don't know that you can make sense of much of the New Testament. It is that important. So this Feast of Tabernacles, this Feast of Booths, they're midway through it. Uh, the, and what's interesting during this feast is families during this, this time of the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles would build little huts, little booths. Okay, They made them out of palm fronds and straw and grass and a family would live in a little hut for a week. I was thinking about what that must have been like. You know, some of y'all, I think, are campers. Many of y'all are campers, I bet. Some of you are nodding your head like you're not. Too bougie for camping. So camping. For those of you that camp, you kind of know the deal. When you camp, you get away from things. Okay, your family's together. You don't have good cell coverage in a lot of cases. You know, you're, can't, you're cooking around some 
medium, you know, usually a fire or some grill that's right in the middle of your campsite. There's not a lot of other stuff to do, so the family is really communing and connecting during this time. So I think a lot of those elements must have been true during this Feast of Tabernacles and Feast of Booths. While the family is enjoying time together, they've got one another's attention. And how poignant this time must have been every single year when they remembered God's provision for them in the wilderness for 40 years. Year after year, they would have celebrated what God did for them at this point, 1,500 years earlier. There was a big to-do in the temple that went along with the Feast of Booze and Feast of Tabernacles, and most of it took place in the court of women. Okay, Most of it took place in the court of women. All the stuff that we're going to look at this morning takes place in the court of women about midway through the week onward. Okay, so let's look at Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. We're going to try and make sense of what they may have been celebrating at Feast of Booths and Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, here's the first thing. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. As these families gathered, man, they're camping, camping outside Jerusalem. Everybody's, they got one another's attention. They've got eye contact. They've got poor cell phone coverage. They're not distracted on their phones and all these other things. They're all there and they're all present. They're all attentive. And they're going to the court of women to celebrate this moment, this moment where Jesus says, he makes a declaration about water. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He's standing there in the court of women, pointing back to what happened 1,500 years earlier, where Moses struck that rock of water, hydration, provision. And he says, I'm ultimately the fulfillment of that. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What Paul says about this connection is profound. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, he says this. He says, all drank, I'm going to start in verse 1 because it's just so good. Because they're all again pointing back to the exodus and the wilderness experience. And Paul says this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. He's speaking to fellow church members. Okay, fellow Gentile church members. We have a lot in common with the Corinthians here. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And when he stands in that court of women at this Feast of Tabernacles and Feast of Booths, it says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, because I'm the rock. And the rock's going to be struck on the cross. 
Man, it's a beautiful, beautiful fulfillment. It says, I'm the fulfillment of what you've been celebrating for 1,500 years in this Feast of Tabernacles and Feast of Booths where God hydrates his people. Beautiful, beautiful picture of water. Now look in chapter 13 of Exodus. Okay, we've gathered up water from chapter 7. Now let's connect this to chapter 8, where we really are, considering the light of the world. Look at Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. The Lord's presence with the people of God is evidenced by this pillar, this light, this cloud, this fire that went before him, providing direction and guidance and light. That's not all this cloud provided either. If you look across the page at chapter 14, verse 19, you can gather up some other details about this light. Actually, what happens there with this light? It says, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. This is when the armies of Egypt are bearing down on the Israelites. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without anyone coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, made the, water, uh, made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand, on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before the Lord, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. This pillar, this cloud, this fire, this smoke, this illumination was not just guiding them with a light bulb, not just even giving direction, but was giving them protection. This is a profound provision for the people of God. In this light, this pillar, the fire by night, this cloud, this fire. So every year on the Feast of Booze and Feast of Tabernacles, they celebrated the provision of light during the feast with four huge candelabra set up in the court of women. They actually took the undergarments from the priests from the year previous. It's kind of cool, keeping them always in clean and handy, at least a year old undergarments. And they took those undergarments and they stripped them and made wicks from them and big bowls of oil and they burned these things. And supposedly, as the saying goes, it lit up all of Jerusalem, these candelabra in this court. And it's here in this moment, just like, just like he proclaimed about water as they remembered and celebrated water. Here with light surrounding them, bathing all of Jerusalem, it says. He declares, I am the light of the world. He's the fulfillment of what they've been celebrating for 1,500 years. He's the substance of the shadow that guided them over there in the wilderness 1,500 years earlier. Water 
and light are the fixtures of the Feast of Tabernacles and Booths, and these are the environments and places where he makes these declarations about himself. He's the fulfillment of these things. These fit really nicely with what Morris preached on last week of the Lord declaring that first I am statement, I am the bread of life, pointing back to the manna in the wilderness. Between bread and light and water, these are the fixtures of the wilderness wanderings. These are the fixtures of the exodus. And they going, going backward, man, this, this thing that's bathed in all of these is life, life, life. If you were to circle life in each of these narratives, if you were to circle life in the Gospels when they're mentioned, it's all over the place because that's the theme in each of these things with the provision of light and water and bread as a provision of life. He's giving a people that were stuck in slavery in Egypt freedom and life. I want to encourage you to just step away from these narratives just for a moment. This is the thought that's going to end our time of going older, and then we're going to look bigger. I want to encourage you with this thought. These I am statements are about far more than you getting a meal when you're hungry. These I am statements are about far more than a full belly. These declarations from the Lord are about far more than you getting that job that you've been pining for. They're about far more than getting well if you've been sick. These declarations are profoundly bigger. What he's saying is he's connecting these back to this wilderness wandering experience. He's saying that these declarations that he's the fulfillment of He's saying he's the difference between dying in the wilderness and making it to the promised land. He's the difference between dying in the wilderness as starvation, of dehydration, of dying in the wilderness at the hands of the Egyptians, dying in the wilderness at the hands of the Amalekites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, or making it to the promised land. And if you have the thought that, man, you know, that just seems kind of tired and seems kind of old, that seems like that's way back there and that's irrelevant for us, this is where Paul took a church 2,000 years ago, the Corinthian church, that has more in common with us than you believe and speaks to them of those events at that point that were 1,500 years old and says Christ is the rock that was struck. It was relevant for a church 2,000 years ago and it's relevant for us in your mess in your darkness, these declarations are that profound. It's the difference between dying in the wilderness of slavery to sin and death or experiencing and realizing eternal life, people of God. These statements about who he is are that profound. Remember, John said, after all, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing you may have life in his name. Man, I hope I have a room full of people right here that are all in. Yes, life, please. Life over better job. Life over health. Life over healing. Life over new relationship. Life over better house. Life over better car. Yes, life over every single thing that I'm usually thinking about all day long, every day of the week. 
Yes, please, today, the people of God can gather and say, yes, these declarations are it. They are the sum and substance of who I want to be about, what I want to be after. Life. I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and believing you may have life in his name. So in order to really connect to these declarations about who he is, I'm the bread of life. Anyone who comes to me uh, who thirsts will find this living, eternal hydration, this living, eternal water, this declaration about being the light of the world. We have to be more than hungry for a simple meal. We have to be more than hungry for that next job or relationship. We have to be more than eager for this next thing that you're after. You have to be hungry for someone who nourishes eternally, someone who hydrates eternally, and someone who gives us light that brings life. He is the light of the world in the greatest darkness that this world, uh, the greatest thing in this world that we will experience in darkness of slavery to sin and death he is the light and the solution to that problem now let's go bigger we've gone older i'd like to go bigger in the next few minutes let me explain what i'm meaning by that those are introductory terms i've never used before i do it functionally almost every single week but i want to explain what they are when i say i'm going older what i'm looking to is old testament context usually you can't make sense of the new testament apart from the old testament I heard a guy describe it like a, uh, he, was, he was telling some jokes to his kids and telling these, um, you know, rabbi, priest, doctor, lawyer jokes. And uh, he, he told a joke of, of a rabbi, priest, doctor, and lawyer walking into a bar. And um, the, the bartender looks up and says, what, am I in a joke? Okay. Those of you that have a repertoire or a catalog of those kinds of jokes know that that in and of itself had some irony. But if you don't have a catalog of those jokes, you don't even get it. And a lot of us that don't, take our time to understand that old context can't make sense of the punchline that is the New Testament. It's a beautiful illustration, and I'm not saying that it's a joke in the funny sense, but you can't get the New Testament apart from bathing in the old. So old, go old. We go old almost every single week. We've gone old in these last few minutes. Now we're going to go wider and bigger. Okay, we're going to look around the context of this declaration. That declaration in chapter 8, verse 12, you can go back over to John. I think we're done with Exodus for the, for the morning. We're going to go back over to John to what, what, I, what I really enjoyed as, I think, um, a really personal, a really tender, a really special moment that our Lord had with a woman caught in adultery. Okay, when I say we're going wider and we're going bigger, we're looking to the left and the right of this declaration. Okay, so let's look to the left of this declaration, beginning in chapter 8, verse 1. Actually, I'm going to read the last verse of chapter 7. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. 
Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's talk about a woman caught in darkness. Let's talk about a woman that's in darkness, first of all, because she's a sinner. Any other sinners in here? I think I can look around the room and understand and expect that every single person in this room can relate to the darkness of sin. Doesn't it make some hearty promises? Doesn't it? Man, if you have this, if you do this, if you pursue this, then you will really be happy. What a mirage, right? It's the ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing, isn't it? Never satisfying. Never fulfilling. It's the ultimate mirage. And the ultimate lie since the garden. God's holding out on you. Take and eat. Man, the darkness of just being a sinner. This woman must have felt that in that moment. Let's consider just in addition to the darkness of being a sinner that she's also dealing with the darkness of being a sinner that's caught. Anybody else ever been caught? Ever been caught in sin with your hand in the cookie jar? Anybody ever had an audit where the numbers don't match up and you're the person in charge? Anybody ever have something that comes full circle and comes to the light and you have to deal with the darkness of shame? Any other sinners in here that ever been nabbed? Can we appreciate the darkness this woman must have felt? How about a test score that doesn't quite add up and your teacher knows better, students? Anybody ever had that darkness of guilt and shame? This woman is dealing with the darkness of being a sinner. She's dealing with the darkness of being a sinner caught. She's dealing with the guilt or the, the darkness of a sinner being caught in sexual sin. Is there anything darker? Is there anything darker than sexual sin? Is there anything more harmful? I don't know what it is about sexual sin, but it is profoundly damaging. Paul, when he spoke of sexual sin to the Corinthians, of all people, they, they had sexual sin going on in their church like it was a sport, like it was a contest. And he dealt with it head on. He said, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral, immoral person sins against his own body. There's something profoundly destructive and painful about sexual sin. 
Later on in Corinthians, he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 people fell in a single day. He's speaking of Numbers chapter 25, if you'd like to go back and look at it. That wilderness experience that's so informative. He says, we must not put Christ to the test. There's something profoundly dark about sexual sin. Proverbs says, 632, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. I suspect that the quiet in this room is resonating with the painful nature of sexual sin. This is a darkness this woman must have felt in that moment. A sinner a sinner caught, a sinner caught in sexual sin, a sinner caught in sexual sin standing condemned. Can you imagine this moment, this woman standing with a crowd of men around her, accusing her, dragging her in front of the Lord? A woman caught in sin, a woman caught, a woman caught in sin, a woman caught in sexual sin, a woman caught in sexual sin standing condemned, and a woman caught in sexual sin standing condemned to death. They're standing there planning to pick up stones. This is a profoundly dark moment, and our Lord wonderfully brings light to the darkness of sin. He brings light to this dark moment of judgment and condemnation. He brings light and hope and forgiveness to this dark moment of death. What a light he is in this moment. Here's what's so interesting about that passage. Chapter 8, really the last verse of chapter 7 through chapter 8, verse 11. If you look at your Bible, I bet there's not a Bible in here that doesn't have a note above or, ab or, above or below it. This says some of the earlier manuscripts do not have that narrative in there. There are guys that I've heard of that won't preach that passage because they don't believe it to be authoritative. I'm like, doesn't it sound like Jesus? Is there some way that it doesn't sound like our Lord? I hope it sounds like him. But what's interesting about this passage? Chapter 7, whatever that is, verse 53, the very, yeah, verse 53 through 811. It's not even using John-type language. John probably did not write it. Man, uh, people are like, going to be squirming like, what are you talking about? I want, I want to introduce this notion of an inspired, Holy Spirit-inspired editor. They said, I'm going to place this right here. It was probably written by Luke. It actually has a lot in common with Luke's language, the way Luke writes and a spirit-inspired editor places this here and says, he's about to say, I'm the light of the world. Let me show this beautiful dark moment where he demonstrates it. Where a sinner, a sinner that's caught, a sinner that's caught in sexual sin, a sinner that's standing there condemned to death, our Lord steps in and brings light to that dark moment. Man, what a fitting placement. I wonder if the editor was a preacher and that was a, an illustration. It's a beautiful one. Can we relate to the darkness that she must have felt and enjoy together as fellow sinners that he is light and darkness 
when you're a sinner, when you're a sinner caught, when you're a sinner caught in sexual sin and every other kind of sin. Fellow saints, he is going to be and is the light to those sins where you go, how in the world did I get here? This has never happened before. Are those sins that are besetting ones? You're like, how did I get here again? He's the answer in both, in both circumstances. He's the light to both of those circumstances. He is the light that steps into that darkness. He will be your light and freedom from those sins as you walk, present tense. As you follow, present tense, you will find healing and hope and relentless, ever-flowing forgiveness. Because that's what he does. He brings light to darkness. Man, his light sheds light on the dark heart of a sinner, doesn't it? And brings hope and forgiveness. Let me just shed a little more light on this if I can, pun intended. He didn't just shine light in the dark heart of the sinner that's caught and nabbed. In this little narrative, the light also shines on the men that are standing around her. Man, can you feel it? The seething crowd of men, self-righteous, judgmental, condemning bunch. They're not even treating her like a person. The passage in the narrative, I think it's verse 3, verse 3 says that they placed her. Like she's just an object. Here you go. She's not even a human being. We're going to get this guy, whatever it costs. And you're just a visual aid. Jesus steps into that moment and sheds light, not just on her, but also on the dark, condemning heart of man. Anybody else in here good at that too? Anybody? I wish I knew what he wrote in the, in the, the dirt. It says he wrote twice, twice I think. I, I would love to know what he wrote. I can't help but wonder if he wrote adulterer in the dirt. It might be one of those things, you know, if you have a list of things that you want to ask the Lord that you, when you see him, you know, that might be one of those questions. Lord, what did you write? I can't help but wonder if he just with his finger wrote adulterer. Because ironically, as these Pharisees are standing here representing Israel, so judgmental and so condemning and so self-righteous, how guilty they were of the same sin. Go back and read Numbers 25. It's graphic. It's sad, but it's a glimpse into what was the relentless story for Israel for the next 1,500 years. I wonder if he wrote Jeremiah 13, 26, and 27. Now, they probably didn't have those annotations then. Listen to this. I myself will lift up your skirts over your face, and your shame will be seen. I've seen your abominations, your adulteries, and the, and the neighings, your lewd whorings on the hills of the field. Woe to you, O Jerusalem, where they're standing on that day. How long will it be before you are made clean? Man, these men were guilty of the same thing. 
There's a whole book dedicated to the whoredom and adultery and prostitution of Israel. It's the book of Hosea. Ugh. Go marry Gomer. Wow. The bride of a lifetime right there. It's going to illustrate what you've done with me. He sheds healing light to a woman caught in sin, and he sheds guilty light on self-righteous, condemning, unrepentant Pharisees. Man, that's just looking to the left. We hadn't even talked about looking to the right, because I'm going to save that for next week. Anybody look to the right yet? Anybody look at chapter 9? To see a man who was born blind, who lived his entire life blind, and is healed of his blindness by our Lord. And then men respond the same way, self-righteous and judgmental and continuing in darkness. Man, all we have to do is look to the left and to the right to add some potency to this declaration, I am the light of the world, or some understanding. It's already potent. It doesn't need anything added to it. But I hope maybe this woman caught in adultery. I hope maybe these men that you can almost visualize. I hope maybe even just mentioning this man who is blind, spent his whole life in blindness, who's healed of blindness, might give you some tangible outworkings to know that this light of the world brings real help to real people and real problems. That's what he does. He brings light to real darkness and real circumstances so here's my appeal for the morning my last thought for you my appeal is simple bring your darkness to the light of the world bring your sin bring your blindness bring your condemning self-righteous, judgmental hearts, whatever it might be this morning. Bring your fears, your worries, your anxieties, whatever they are, bring them to the light of the world. Follow him, present tense. Like it's your walk, like it's your lives, like it's where you live and move and have your being, not as an activity on your calendar, but an identity as a follower of Christ. Follow him. And watch as you do that this light of the world will bring life to you. Let's pray. Lord, this is good medicine. On any given day, at any given life and home and family, there's some measure of darkness that we experience. And Lord, I'm thankful that you bring light to that darkness, but more importantly, you bring profound light to the darkness of slavery to sin and self. We are not enslaved to our relationship to the old Adam. We're not enslaved to this person and this sinfulness that we are by nature. But in Christ, we've found freedom. And Lord, we can actually walk with you as a result. Lord, we are thankful that you bring profound light to the most profound darkness that we experience. I pray this reality, Lord, this week will invade some spaces where things seem so important that in light of this are able to be reframed and, and are just less important. 
I pray that this morning that you've equipped the saints to walk into those moments that seem so pregnant and frustrating and that we can find some peace in realizing and knowing and enjoying that we know the light of the world, that we are well on our way walking with him to the promised land, and he's going to guide us and protect us as we go. What good news. Lord, we are so thankful. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Our supper this morning comes from Luke chapter 22. I want to invite you to prepare to take the supper if you are a follower of Christ. If you are, uh, if you are not, if you are here maybe just as a friend of the family or uh, if you're maybe searching but you have not committed your life to following Christ, I would ask you to forego this meal. But if you are a follower of Christ, please grab one of these little kits that we have over here and make a beeline with me to this supper table. I'm going to read a passage from Luke chapter 22. Jesus has a way of stepping into moments where people are practicing things and have been practicing these things for hundreds of years and declares, I'm the fulfillment of what you've been doing. He did it three times over this morning already, right? You eat manna over there, you're celebrating eating manna, you're remembering it each year in the Feast of Tabernacles and Booths. Guess what? I'm the bread of life. You celebrate the water that was provided. What they did apparently in the Feast of Tabernacles and Booths is they took these big pitchers of water and they just sprayed them all over the altar. You imagine that moment where it's just whoosh. He says, I'm the living water. I'm the one that you come to to find eternal water or eternal life and eternal hydration. Come to me for drink. He has a habit of doing that. In that moment where all of Jerusalem is lit up with these candelabras. He says, I'm the light of the world. And here at the supper table with his followers, chapter 22, verse 8, it says, Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. Picking up in verse 14, when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this thing that you've been doing for 1,500 years, remembering the night of Passover that final plague and that exodus from Egypt, that thing you've been doing for 1,500 years, uh, remembering and celebrating with a Passover lamb, I'm that Passover lamb. Do that thing now remembering me. He's the fulfillment of all that that had been. And we celebrate that together in joining those saints, even the saints around that table on that first Passover meal. Let's take and eat in faith. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's take and drink in faith. Let me pray. Lord, what a good meal. What a wonderful fulfillment our Lord is 
of all that celebration had been, Lord, we take and eat heartily. We are so thankful for the, for the provision that you have given us in Christ. Lord, we need this nourishment, and you give it amply. Lord, we entrust the, the remaining minutes of our time together to you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Y'all stand if you would for worship and song.